0: Every career is a journey. Every leader has a story. Welcome to Journey to the Energy C-Suite, where we look at the strategies and techniques that turn solid leaders into top executives. This is your place to hear practical wisdom and guidance from real people who know what it takes. With your host, Ryan Sanford.
1: Hey again, everybody, and welcome back to Journey to the Energy C-Suite. Brought to you by Price College of Business, the Executive MBA Program in Energy at the University of Oklahoma, and the Oil & Gas Global Network, which we are a proud affiliate. A very exciting day today and a very exciting summer so far. Face-to-face meetings really cranking up all across the industry right now, live conferences coming back, and live networking events. And Speaking of networking events, the OGGN is hosting their second happy hour of the summer, coming up on Thursday, July 29th at the Canon in West Houston. Check out the show notes for a link to register for that event. It is filling up fast, so don't wait. Do it now. And I hope to see you there. I will be there. I attended the one in June, and it was fantastic. Great panel discussion. A lot of great networking folks from all different walks of the industry getting together in person. So if you've been jonesing from some in-person networking, this is a great opportunity for you to get involved in. Now for the really exciting part, I want to introduce my guest today. He is a former U.S. naval officer and a carrier-based fighter pilot, speechwriter for General Colin Powell, who was a chairman of the Chiefs of Staff. He has held senior leadership roles, both domestic and abroad, in the automotive industry and in energy. He spent over a dozen years at Shell Oil Company in a variety of senior leadership roles, including vice president of Energy Transition. Vice President of External Affairs, and he also spent a part of his time there seconded to the Houston Mayor's Office to aid in the Hurricane Harvey recovery efforts. He wrapped up his corporate career as the Chief Communications Officer at Boeing. He is currently serving as a Senior Counselor for Sard Verbenen and Company, a top-ranked global strategic communications consultancy advising clients on a wide range of matters, including M M&A, and crises, corporate positioning, and ESG. Which has been on everyone's minds lately. So he is Neil Go Lightly. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited to have you on my show. How are you today?
0: I'm doing great, Ryan. And it's great to be with you.
1: Hey, well, it's great to have you. And what a remarkable and versatile career you have experienced. That's the thing that really stands out to me. But you also continue to put yourself right in the thick of things with your latest work partnering with the Greater Houston Partnership and the city of Houston and other groups that are really focused on this Houston energy transition initiative. We're going to talk a lot about that here in a little bit. But before we do that, I want to take you back a little bit earlier in your career. You were a U.S. Naval officer. You spent a lot of your time there in some really fascinating roles. And I want to first kind of take you back to that to that point in time and, and ask you, you know, what were the most important things you learned about leadership there in the U.S. Navy? And how did that shape your personal leadership point of view?
0: Yeah, Ryan, I'm really glad you asked that question because I find to this day, I left the Navy a long time ago, but I find to this day that sometimes the civilian world and especially the corporate world can't quite get its head around exactly what it is that the military background, the military leadership training brings to the table. And of course, there are a lot of things that, that probably are, are you know, well rehearsed. A lot of people talk about them. They're probably pretty obvious. You know, Taking care of your people accountability, attention to detail, clarity of mission, but there's one word that might be a little bit unexpected, and that is trust, earning trust and giving trust. And I'll give you just a a little bit of a story that really highlights what I mean by that. I spent a lot of my time in the Navy flying airplanes, carrier-based flying. It was great fun. It was tremendously exciting. It was just a wonderful time in my life. But I remember very, very vividly episodes on the flight deck of a carrier, often when when I had just landed an F-14 on the USS Kennedy. And I vividly remember the whole process of taking an airplane from the landing area on the flight deck to the parking spot up on the bow of that flight deck. And that process involved obviously me maneuvering the airplane, taxing the airplane across the flight deck, but it also involved the flight deck crew. And these were young guys, all guys at that time, but these were, these were young guys, maybe 19, 20 years old. Maybe they had, they had a little bit of college. Maybe they hadn't even graduated from high school. But they were giving me the directions I needed in order to maneuver that airplane on a very crowded, very dangerous flight deck, sometimes in the middle of the night to get it from one place to another without falling over the edge of the flight deck. My life was in the hands of this, this, this young guy and many of them on the flight deck. In some cases, I didn't even know who they were. They lived in some other part of the ship than I did. But the trust that was required by me to, in, to, to know that they knew what they were doing to get me safely to where I needed to go and the trust they had to have in me to know I wouldn't run over them or do the wrong doggone thing. And that was a, a memory that I I have vividly and it really drives home that sense of of trust. Earning it, number one, and giving it, number two. And that's one of the biggest lessons I learned from my Navy time.
1: It really does translate into just about any corporate leadership environment when you think about it. Actually, I had a guest on last week, George had, and we talked a lot about trust and building trust and it seems to be an issue that still comes up on the agenda of lots of senior leaders when it comes to changing culture, shaping culture, building teams, trying to move from good to great, that sort yep. of thing. Yeah.
0: Yep. I think you're absolutely right. And it's an obvious one in an operational environment, especially in the oil and gas business, where there's a, there's a lot of, you know, let's face it, very dangerous environments that we operate in. But it's just as relevant, I think, in a corporate C-suite where you're relying on one another, whether it's functional, operational sorts of roles, you're relying on on one another to get the mission done, to get the objective met.
1: Yeah. I want to talk a little bit too about some of the work you've done in your career around really helping leaders and organizations work through crises and you you have been an external communications expert for a long time chief communications officer you've been involved in lots of these things that happened across your career and i wonder if you can think about maybe one particular really challenging crisis that you helped guide your company through what did you learn from that
0: it's really a great question and as you as you know i've been involved in a, a lot of them over the years i think one that comes to mind and it really underscores one of the aspects of crisis leadership that I think is so, so important and maybe even underrated. The one that comes to mind is from a few years ago. I was actually, at the time, the chief of staff to Bill Ford. Bill was at the time the non-executive chairman of Ford Motor Company, also, oh, by the way, the great-grandson of Henry Ford, direct descendant of the founder of Ford Motor Company. And I will... Always remember vividly being in his office one day, and we glanced out the office windows on the 13th floor of the world headquarters there in Dearborn, Michigan, and we could see the Rouge factory, one of the biggest and, and most iconic factories for Ford that was within sight. It was maybe three, four, five miles away. And an explosion had just happened at the Rouge factory and the boiler plant that was there and we could see the smoke rising up. And it was clearly, clearly something was a riot. Of course, immediately the phone started ringing and we could see it happening. there. And Bill's first reaction when we started to get the first indications, yes, there's been an explosion. There've been some injuries. There might even have been some fatalities. As it turned out, there were fatalities, many of them. And Bill's first reaction was, I need to be there. I need to get there. And we hesitated. I hesitated, quite frankly, a little bit. I thought, okay, you know, first responders, do you you, know, do you need the, the suits from the world headquarters there on the spot? But he was adamant and he was right because he went there. We all went there and he was on TV immediately talking about this is the worst day of my life. This is such a critical event. I just This is just a horrible thing that has just happened. He was the face of the company. He was the face of the family. And so from a communications point of view, he was doing all the right things and it came from a, a place of deep, deep emotional investment. But there was something else that I learned from that experience, not just that moment in time, but also the weeks following where Bill went and visited with the families of the victims, the people that had died. And he went and visited the people that had been injured, some of them critically. I stood by Bill's side when we were dressed out in, in surgical gowns in an ICU unit with one of the victims on the table in front of us and his wife on the other side of the table from us. And what I realized is that in addition to all the things that we learn about crisis management and, and you know, prioritizing and making sure that you're you know, focused on the right messaging and that sort of thing, there is a emotional investment. There's an emotional loneliness that leaders in a crisis have. And I, and I had completely understood that and appreciated that until I was working with Bill in that context. And I've seen it many times since. It is a cliche, but it's true. It's lonely at the top. And when, it's a, when there's a crisis, it gets excruciatingly lonely at the top. So whether you're that person on point or whether you're a person supporting that individual that's got the, the accountability in that moment in time, making sure that that leader is resilient Making sure that somebody's taking care of that leader because that leader is feeling the accountability of taking care of everybody else. So I think that loneliness is is a word that jumps into my mind when I think about what I've learned from observing really good leaders in crises.
1: Yeah. There, there are other aspects that you found that senior leaders tend to struggle with when it comes to kind of really public crises like this over the years where you've advised many of them and kind of stood next to them during those and, and helped them shape sort of the, the public response. Are there other aspects that, that you found are really important?
0: I think the next most important, in my mind, is the tendency that leaders will have to want to go to the sound of the guns right, and and to go deep into what's actually happening in the moment. So there's an explosion. There's a fire. I was involved in the colic incident when I was at Shell, where a drill ship in Alaska came loose from its moorings in in a storm and piled up on the rocks in the Aleutian Islands. And that was an ongoing, almost a slow motion crisis over two or three days. And there is sometimes a tendency for, for leaders to focus on the tactical. Well, typically at the highest levels of a company like Shell or Ford, you've got very, very capable people that are handling the immediate emergency response. They're taking care of the tactical. You want to make sure they're taking care of the tactical but they don't need a suit from back at world headquarters you know, saying, well, fire up the three-inch firefighting line. You, know, you just don't need that. What the leaders need to do is say, okay, yes, I've got the right people on the, imme- the immediate emergency. What's next? What's over the horizon? How do I need to be thinking about how our stakeholders are going to be reacting to this? How do I need to be thinking about what they need? How do I need to be thinking about how the business is going to continue to run? How do I need to be thinking about the consequences of this over the next weeks, months, maybe even years.
1: Yeah. I really want to also talk about another thing that you've been heavily involved in over the years and you're involved in it now is the energy transition. This whole discussion right now, which is on everyone's mind. Any in energy industry. You spent some time at Shell. You spent over a dozen years there, and you you had a, a period of time where you were actually responsible for the energy transition initiatives at Shell Oil. I wonder if you could take us back five or six years when you were in that spot. How different was the conversation then? Take us into the boardroom. Well, what it was like then compared to now, or. Every company is publicly talking about these these issues. I might
0: even take you back just a little bit further than that, That Ryan. I had the role of head of sustainability at Ford Motor Company, gosh, about 20 years ago when it was a very new concept. And what I have observed across the corporate domain since then is a, a series of inflection points in the whole agenda around sustainability and more recently, very specifically around the energy transition. And that is that the agenda has gone from being a bit of a differentiator on the margin. So early on, people were, you know, companies were looking at this and saying, well, gosh, there's starting to be some noise around sustainability, noise around climate change, noise around environmental issues. How do we use that to differentiate our products, our services, our brand in in a positive way? Is there an opportunity there to you know, frankly, green up our brand a little bit, and that's kind of where it was in those early days. Then it really started to transition into being. You know, this is starting to become a real risk—a risk from a investor standpoint. It's a risk from a license to operate standpoint. It's a risk from a recruiting and retention standpoint. How do we manage that risk? This is this is starting to become real. Sort of the, the mindset. And now I think it's become not at the margin it's not something that is a add on to the agenda it is central to the agenda it's become existential so it's gone from being a differentiator on the margin to being a risk to be managed to being truly existential and i think that even over the last 3 or 4 years we've seen that that transition from you know, risk management to, to we need to be on top of the strategy it needs to be core to what we do because if we want to be relevant and competitive in a market that's transitioning so dramatically we need to understand how we're going to compete how we're going to operate what our strategy needs to look like what our investment needs to look like and i would i would just add to that i think that at least in my experience at every stage of those transitions from from being just sort of a marginal dis- differentiator to being a risk on the risk matrix to being existential The companies that have been most successful are the ones that are already at the next stage, the ones that have looked over the horizon and said, ah, this is coming. How do we how do we get ahead of that curve? How do we start to think about what our world is going to look like five years from now, 10 years from now? A company like Shell and many in the in the industry that are audiences for this podcast are thinking even 20 or 30 years down the road, simply because of the life cycle of the investments that are made in the in the oil and gas industry. So I see that as part of the, the change in that conversation just over the last five years.
1: I want to fast forward a little bit to current day, and you mentioned looking over the horizon, you have been a big part of the Houston Energy Transition Initiative lately. You've, you've been working as a consultant along with the Greater Houston Partnership and other groups, City of Houston, on the, the Houston Energy Transition Initiative. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how did that come about? How did you get involved in it? And what does that really mean for, for Houston as a city, the oil and gas capital of the world, their future?
0: It's hard for me to imagine many more exciting or fulfilling projects than this this project over the last six, seven, eight months. Working with the Greater Houston Partnership, working with Bobby Tudor at, the, at Tudor Pickering and Holt, working with the whole team at the partnership and with the, the McKinsey team as well. And it really came about, it sort of started with Bobby Tudor's famous speech at the beginning of 2020. He was the chairman of the Greater Houston Partnership. He stood up at the annual meeting and essentially his message was oil and gas has been very, very good to Houston, but it's not going to be the driver of growth going forward. It's going to be relevant. It's going to be around for a long time, but it's not going to be the driver of growth. We need to figure out how we're going to turn this whole issue of energy transition of climate from a threat and a risk into an opportunity. And Bobby himself, from time to time, privately calls it more or less his Nixon to China moment. Completely unexpected to a lot of people outside of Houston that that, that don't know Bobby well, or even know the industry in Houston well. But it unlocked a whole conversation that hadn't been going on at least prominently and in public before. People were now talking about, okay, yes, this transition is happening. We do need to move towards a low-carbon energy system. Climate change is real. We need to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Uh, And that was just a huge, huge inflection point for Houston.
2: And I called Bob Harvey. Bob
0: Harvey is the CEO at uh, Greater Houston Partnership and has done just such a tremendous job of leading that organization over the last seven or eight years. And I called Bob and I said, wow. I was just coming off of a corporate role at the, at Boeing company, and I had a little bit of time on my hands. And I called Bob, and I said, "You know, that was just a really powerful speech." And everybody I'm talking to in town is talking about what a huge difference it's made. What are we going to do to take that forward? How are we going to make that come to life you know, now that he's planted that flag in the in the ground? And, and Bob said, "You know, we're kind of we're kind of struggling with that. We've got you know a few other things going on, like the pandemic and Black Lives Matter, and a lot of other very very important issues." And I said, is there anything I can do to help? So we started to talk about that. We got some ideas in from Accenture. We got some some help from McKinsey. And we kicked off this project at the beginning of the year. And really, the core of the project, including a lot of really very, very comprehensive analysis by the McKinsey team, the core of the project was a round of interviews with some of the key leaders, mainly in the energy industry, but also in adjacent industries and in the public sector and in the academic sector, roughly 60 or 70 of them overall. And we had in-depth interviews with each one and asked them how they saw this challenge, what they saw as the priorities, what they saw as the key challenges in front of the city. And I have to say, one of the things that I found just incredibly motivating, stimulating, reassuring, was that these were, by and large, mostly energy, oil, and gas CEOs, and none of them challenged the premise. None of them said, Energy transition now? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, not important. You know, we're focused here on on oil and gas. None of them denied the urgency of the of the climate challenge. In fact, quite the opposite. They were all leaning in, all saying, "Yes, yeah, we've been thinking about this. We know it's important. We've been looking for a way to coalesce around a strategy for the region." And thank goodness you guys are here to to help, kind of lead that conversation. So it was it was hugely, I think, stimulating, hugely important. the last part of your question, what does it mean for Houston's future? Try 600,000 jobs on for size. That's the number that some analysis that we did that McKinsey helped us with looking at various scenarios. That's a number that could represent the number of jobs that we could add in the Houston region if we really embrace this transition. And that doesn't mean Pivoting, abandoning oil and gas, it means adding a whole new range of opportunities, a whole new range of investments and different kinds of technologies to the portfolio of energy that we already have in this in the city. 600,000 jobs. Think of that as a proxy for overall economic growth. Think of it as a proxy for how the, the vibrancy of the city, the size of the city, the attractiveness of the city to young talent coming in. Uh, will manifest over over these next you know five, ten, thirty years if we get this right.
1: So, in those conversations with with all of the the CEOs that you all spoke with, what were some of the biggest challenges that that you discovered that are that could be standing in the way of, of Houston's transition to really leading in a lower carbon economy?
0: So, Ryan, I will talk about the challenges in just a second, but I'm going to start with the opportunities. Then I'll talk about the challenges. I think one of the things that we really got excited about as we were working through this project was was just how much of an asset Houston has when it comes to leading in the energy transition to a low carbon energy system. We've got this massive, massive engineering workforce in the in the city. And it's already attuned to the energy market, to energy technologies, and it, it knows how to do massive scale projects. So The engineering workforce is one. The infrastructure that already exists here, if you think about something, let's say like CCUS, carbon capture utilization and storage, that's going to require, in order for it to have any material impact, it's going to require massive infrastructure, pipelines, industrial sources, concentration of emission sources, for example, around the Houston ship channel. We've got all that right here in, in, in Houston. We've already got a massive renewable generation capacity here as well. We've got you know, a very, very business-friendly environment here as well for, for startups as well as large companies. And the port itself is just a huge opportunity, both from the point of view of where can we, you know, can we really be effective in mitigating and, and utilizing CCUS, but also in terms of export and import, but especially export of, of low-carbon LNG, but say just, uh, just as an example. So those are all the huge opportunities I think that Houston has to to offer in in this transition. There are some challenges, though, to come back to your question. Frankly, I think the image of Houston is a challenge. People haven't yet, outside of Houston anyway, people haven't yet completely cottoned on to the fact that the conversation has changed in the city. If you're a distant observer of Houston, you think, okay, that's Houston. It's all about oil and gas and big hats and cowboy boots and wildcatters <laughs> and all that stuff. And yet we're proud of that history. There's no question about it. But there's a different kind of conversation going on now around this transition and a real embrace of it. And until that becomes more widely known across the country and around the world, we'll struggle a little bit to convince people, yeah, we're really serious about this. And you should come here if you're interested in energy transition because it's going to big opportunity. I think a second thing that I would point to is there is a little bit of a challenge around collaboration. And what I mean by that is it's probably a truism that any transition to a system is by definition going to require a great deal of collaboration across a number of different players and a number of different sectors within that system. What do I mean by that? The whole impact that energy has on the climate, on the atmosphere, on emissions involves both the production and the distribution and the use of energy. So thinking about, for example, the transport sector in conjunction with the energy sector and thinking about how different kinds of fuels interact with the different kinds of vehicles that utilize those fuels. Or let's think about circular economy, recycling. I mean, it's fine for a group of companies or even an individual company to come up with a recycling technology. Linda Bazel, for example, and Exxon and many others are, are coming up with some really, really interesting and exciting technologies for breaking down plastics at a molecular level. All that's great. But if that isn't hooked up with su- the, the supply of recyclable feedstock, you know, working with companies that have access to that kind of feedstock. It just it doesn't go around until you get all of that together. So this collaborate this notion of collaboration is one that I think we need to get even better at within
1: Houston. I want to go back because you mentioned startups a couple of minutes ago, and I was thinking, you know, that this huge transition that's going on in our in our industry, and we're, we're specifically thinking about Houston as a city here and the part that it's going to play. Innovation is at the heart of this transition for it to happen, and also sustain Houston as as the hub of the energy industry when you think about innovation, you think about places like Silicon Valley, you think about Boston. So why Houston? Can Houston really be one of those places where it becomes this startup community, where it's a great place to start up new businesses and, and innovate?
0: It's a great question. And the answer is is this. In order to innovate in the energy space, you need scale for any kind of startup to make any kind of material impact in in a system that is as massive as the energy system. You need to have a playing field. You need to have a, a playground. You need to have a laboratory that's massive. So yeah, there's some really incredibly smart people in Boston. There's some incredibly smart people doing really interesting things in Silicon Valley. That's great. Fantastic. Universities in, in, in both locations, but Where are they going to be able to deploy those ideas on anything like the scale that we can offer in Houston with the kind of massive laboratory, the infrastructure, the pipelines, systems that we've got, the industrial capacity that we have, the ability to take projects to multi-billion dollar scale to put steel in the ground? That can only happen in a place like Houston. So, in fact, we're already starting to see some migration of some really good ideas. And by the way, we've got plenty of homegrown ideas of our own and lots of very smart people here that are in some cases supported by our two great universities here, Rice and University of Houston. Uh, in some cases, we've just got really, really smart people in some of the big companies and, and elsewhere. But we're also seeing an inflow of both capital and innovative thinking from both coasts, from Silicon Valley and Boston, because people are coming here and saying, wow, I can I can play in this this sandbox on a much bigger scale with my ideas than I can anyplace else. I think that's one of the reasons why Greentown Labs, for example, opened up its first franchise if I can use that term outside of Boston, right here in Houston. And uh, Emily Reichert, who runs uh, Greentown Labs up in Boston, came down here and she looked around. And she said, "Yeah, this is a place where we can take some of these really innovative ideas that are taking shape in Boston. We can bring them down here." And they can really flourish in this kind of environment.
1: I'm going to ask you to put on your leadership hat for a moment. Our, our podcast is really focused around leadership. And you think about the profile of the energy leader of the future and this big shift that's going on. If you, if you think about what is going to be required of leaders to lead in this industry going forward, give us your idea of what those changes are going to look like.
0: What I'm going to say to that, Ryan, is it's, it's I think, a blend, a hybrid that we probably haven't thought as much about as we should between what I'll call experience and progressive vision. And I'm at a certain stage in my career, in my life where I, I look back on a number of years of experience and I reflect on this assumption in some quarters that the the smartest, best creative ideas are these bright young things that are just starting out in their careers. And, and you know, Goodness knows there are some really, really incredibly bright, thoughtful, progressive, creative people that are coming out of our universities now and getting into the energy space. There is also a true value, an extraordinary value, in joining that up with a set, a generation of leaders who have spent a long time in this industry. I'm reminded of the. Quote that sometimes attributed to Winston Churchill, who said, You know, if you're conservative when you're young, there's something wrong with your heart. If you're liberal when you're old, there's something wrong with your head. In some respects, I probably got that completely backwards. So, <laughs> but I think that that combination of very progressive vision, sort of, this sort of new thinking, new creativity, with leavened with that experience, with that ability to say, okay, we've tried this. It didn't work before, but here's another way that we ought to try it because this is what my experience tells me. I think that combination, whether it's you know in an individual or whether it's in a team of individuals is really, really important if we're going to conquer this whole opportunity surrounding the energy transition.
1: I think part of that progressive vision, there's a communication aspect to this when you're thinking about these leaders that are trying to attract young talent to an industry where from the outside looking in, one could maybe think the oil and gas industry is kind of breathing its last breath. You know, why should younger people even consider it as a viable option? There's a key message and a way to send that message to the younger generation of employees that you're trying to attract to Houston in the industry. So talk about that a little bit. Should they consider it as a viable option?
0: They absolutely should. And for a couple of reasons. One is... And there are some people that just don't like to hear this, but it is absolutely true. Hydrocarbons, oil and gas are going to be part of any energy future we can possibly imagine. When I was at Shell, I was involved in some of the scenario building work that Shell is very famous for. And we did a number of scenarios looking at how best Can the global economy get to, let's say, a net zero emissions world by the middle of the century or to a 1.5 degree world by the by 2070? And in every single one of those scenarios and every single McKinsey scenario and every single IEA scenario, there is a major role for oil and gas in all of those scenarios. Smaller, perhaps, than today, but still there. So there is very much a future in, in oil and gas. And I think the second reason is. In order for that future, for oil and gas to be competitive, for it to be relevant, for it to play a responsible role in that future net zero emissions world, Mm -hmm. we need to be accelerating the ability to decarbonize that oil and gas. Let's remember that oil and gas is not the bad guy here. It's the emissions of CO2 from oil and gas that's the bad guy. So if we can figure out how to accelerate the process of stripping that emissions out of the use of oil and gas, if we can figure out how to, to do it more economically, if we can scale that up. That's the opportunity in the oil and gas world to ensure that this very, very powerful, very valuable commodity called oil and gas that is going to be so essential to any energy system in the future. Can play its role responsibly.
1: This whole energy transition conversation is real is a really complex subject. And we've, we've just had a little bit of time to, to touch on that today. One last question for you. You know, Obviously, there are a lot of competing views out there around this, but how can business leaders really effectively navigate this subject in the way that they engage with their diverse stakeholders? They've got employees, they've got shareholders, they've got the public, they've got the media to deal with now. How can the leaders in the industry really effectively navigate through all of those relationships?
0: One way that I wish I saw more leaders in our industry adopting is to lead with a positive vision and then follow with the consequences. What do I mean by that? Often, and I've been in communications in this this industry for quite a while, but so often this industry tends to say, we're going to need a lot more energy going forward and we're going to need to figure out how to do that with lower CO2. Well, there are plenty of audiences out there that hear the first part of that statement, and then they just completely tune out. Oh, well, that's just oil and gas talking about how they want to grow their oil and gas business. And they never hear the rest of them, which is, we've got to figure out how to decarbonize. Pretty doggone simple. Turn that around. Make common cause with the rest of society. We need to figure out how to decarbonize our energy system. It's absolutely essential. It's urgent. It has existential consequences for society, for our companies, for our industry. And guess what? Along with that, we're going to need to expand the amount of energy that we, we produce. And some of it's going to be oil and gas. But you start the conversation with what is the opportunity? What's the vision? How are we going to be part of that global societal aspiration? Then we'll get into the details of what that, what that might mean that's just one simple way to do it. And the, of course, that by itself could be a whole another hour's conversation, Ryan. Right?
1: <laughs> well, I may have to take you up on that second hour. I know you're a busy man with all the work you're doing right now in consulting. We didn't even get to touch on some of the other things you're doing with Sardar Benin, but we'll have to do that at, a, at another time. Neil Golightly, thank you so much for spending your time and sharing your insights with us today. It has been my pleasure.
0: Mine too, Ryan.
1: All right. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We really appreciate your time. Don't forget, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access the show. We would really appreciate that. And if you have any ideas or feedback directly for me, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can email me at ryan.sanford at I look forward to hearing from you and hopefully seeing you at the OGGN Happy Hour coming up on July 29th. Till next time, take care, everybody.
2: Hey everybody! It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for July 2021. This month we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're always interested in staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on July 29th. Our June happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the June one, we hope to see you there this month at our July happy hour. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Don't forget that it's on July 29th. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events. The first one being the Doug Permian and Eagle Ford Conference at the Fort Worth Convention Center from July 12th to July 14th. And the next in-person event is the SPE International Data Science Convention at the Norris Convention Center in Houston, Texas, on July 8th. Next, we have our two online events, the first being a Cognite webinar titled, From Buzzwords to Boardrooms, What Energy Leaders Really Think About the Transition Towards True Sustainability. And that's on July 8th from 1130 to 1230. And lastly, we have the U.S. Africa Energy Forum, which is online on July 12th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for July. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in.
0: Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.